not every medical educator looks the same. And I could never be that particular educator, but I could be the very best version of myself. And just like our learners look different from one another, our patients look different from one another, medical educators look different from one another. And it's okay to embrace that and it's okay to lean into your strengths and just be the best that you can be. Hey, my name is Lizzie. And my name is Julia. And my name is Elizabeth. And we're all internal medicine residents. You're listening to Review Systems, the podcast that explores the past, present, and future of medical education through conversations with experts and learners alike. We are so happy to announce that we have a new co-host, Elizabeth Conan, joining the ROS podcast crew. Lizzie and I have both worked with Elizabeth and think she's phenomenal and are really excited to have her join the team and keep us in touch with the intern perspective. Thank you both. I'm so excited to join the team and to have the opportunity to learn from so many amazing people. Yay. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> As a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast may not be those of the hosts or of the institutions that we work for. In today's episode, we talked to Dr. Caitlin Dietschy about creating an effective chalk talk and how she incorporates teaching on the warts. Caitlin Dietschy is an assistant professor and hospitalist at the University of Colorado Hospital. She is the director of the Medical Education Pathway for the Internal Medicine Residency Program and the director of the Medicine House Staff Teams at the University Hospital. Her career passions include supporting trainees to build their educator skills and giving chalk talks. In her free time, she enjoys rock climbing, backpacking, and skiing. Nailed it. Crushed it. Yeah. Okay. Should we get started? Yeah. Let's get started. Let's do it. We have a new person here today. Yay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> We're messing up the audio. <laughs> uh, two uh, new people. Well, right? two new people. Well, new co-host. New co-host. This me. Is- me. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Elizabeth. We'll introduce you formally okay. and we'll talk it through. We can right. edit this part out. Yeah. Besides the hello, welcome, yay. <laughs> and then we have a fabulous guest today as well, which we haven't done in person in a while. It's weird because yeah, we usually we'll do like an introduction of you that we'll record, yeah. pre-record. Uh, so we'll be like, thank you for being here. And then... Thank you for having me. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Lizzie made that about as awkward as we could have. So, Elizabeth, why don't you take it away with the first question? We haven't done in person. I know. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, starting out a little more generally, tell us about your path to becoming an assistant professor of medicine and director of the clinical educator pathway here at CU. Yes, thank you for asking. But first off, I want to congratulate you all on this amazing podcast that you've created. I have become a new big fan and supporter. I recently listened to your last episode. Uh, uh, Ngozi Anachebe? Okay, maybe not the most recent. Okay. Uh, The one on burnout with Dr. Mann and Dr. Fanstad. It was amazing, very inspiring. Uh, And I thought about how there aren't a lot of venues out there that bring trainees and educators together to have a frank conversation about medical education and how so many of us go through it. 
go through the challenges and the rewards of it. And many of us alone without somebody to talk to or mentor us through it. And this is a place where we can openly discuss those things for people to learn from and maybe feel a little less alone out there. So I think this is wonderful. And thank you. We paid you to say that. (laughs) Thank you for listening. But getting back to the question, um, how I got to where I am, should I start with where you guys are at and sort of how I got here or where, where should I start? Yeah, that'd be great. Whenever you first kind of became interested in med ed. Like when it clicked. Um, Well, I can tell you during my second year as a resident, so where you all are now, um, I'm looking at Bijan over there. We'll give him a mic mic later. Um, That is is not allowed. Yeah, be careful. (laughs) The audience wants to hear from him. Um, Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) So I decided sort of when I was a second year resident that I wanted to be a hospitalist. And it was very much because not that I didn't want to specialize, but I couldn't choose between all of the specialties, what was interesting to me. Uh, And so I thought I would stay a generalist. And I knew that I wanted to care for acutely ill patients in the hospital, which I found to be a great privilege to be able to take care of someone sort of at the lowest point, I would argue, in their life. No one wants to be in the hospital. And so it felt like a very uh, impactful time to help someone through something very challenging. And so once I decided I wanted to be a hospitalist, the question was where and sort of what would that look like? And so I was debating whether I wanted to go into the community, for which I have a lot of respect for those hospitalists, seeing all kinds of things at very high volumes, uh, or if I wanted to stay in academics. And that actually was a pretty easy decision because uh, I just had known all through training that the thing that came easy to me was the joy of collaborating with other trainees and ex- the exchange of knowledge, whether it was me teaching or me getting taught, that just brought such an easy joy that it was a no-brainer to stay in academics and become an educator. Um, one of the first things that I dove into was Chalk Talks, which I can get into later, uh, and some of all of the ways that it went wrong for me early We're on. pointing out a Chalk Talk that she did, right? A few days ago? Actually, yes. Yeah, it's still there. Uh, (laughs) The proof is in the pudding. Um, But then, so sort of the attending part of the journey. So I did my training in Philadelphia and then came directly out here. And this I would describe as my dream job as an academic hospitalist at the University of Colorado. Um, And I would say that I came in wanting to be a medical educator, but I didn't see a lot of opportunities up front. Mm I would take opportunities to teach in the med school. I would take opportunities to teach residents, but I didn't have my niche carved out for actually many years. And so um, I did have an interest specifically in how to teach for a very selfish reason, mostly because I wanted to learn how to do it myself. Um, And so I sought out opportunities to teach how to teach and got connected with Dr. Mel Anderson, Mm -hmm. who's a... uh, a prior guest of this podcast, right? Yep. Um, yeah. And a beloved, well, reputable educator here at the University of Colorado and across the nation. Uh, and so I started sort of uh, just showing up at his, so at the time he was the director and the founder of the clinician educator pathway, mm-hmm. of which I later took over for him. But the way I started was just showing up, going to those lectures, hearing him speak, uh, offering to help in the little ways that I could, sending emails, writing, a, you know, putting the evaluations out for the residents, all those little ways. Um, and along those first few years, I was also given the advice, controversial advice, 
to say yes to everything. And mm. so that led me in a bit of a circuitous path, uh, going through QI projects, opioid stewardship, all of those kinds of things before I came back to medical education. That is when I took over for Mel as the director of the clinician educator pathway. And I'm happy to kind of talk about how I felt in that moment, trying to take over his, the very large shoes that he had, um, you know, his reputation uh, that I suddenly had to take over. I'm happy to address that if you want me to. And then later I got an additional role of being the director of the medicine uh, wards service line here at the university where I get to advocate for residents and onboard attendings and um, introduce new learners to our teams. Like for example, dental residents that started joining us last week. Hmm, um, cool. And so that's a little bit about how I got here. Thank you for sharing all that. And I personally would love to hear the whole like taking over for Mel Anderson, because I think it's something that we don't talk about enough is like all the imposter syndrome that comes along with unless you were had no imposter syndrome, this was assuming, but um, all of that that comes along with like taking over new roles and especially from people who have been giants in the field. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yes. So imposter syndrome doesn't even begin to describe how I felt. I, I truly felt like I could never do it. Like the role was to be Dr. Anderson and it was just impossible to be that good and to uh, have that ease and have that expertise. And so um, actually I learned a really good lesson back then. I got some good advice. And the advice was that not every medical educator looks the same. Sorry for the click of my cam. <laughs> 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 Trying to make an impactful statement. <laughs> um, We're drinking spin drifts or bubbly. Sorry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, staying hydrated. Yes. Um, but what I learned is that not every medical educator looks the same, and I could never be that particular educator. But I could be the very best version of myself. And just like our learners look different from one another, our patients look different from one another. Medical educators look different from one another. And it's okay to embrace that. And it's okay to lean into your strengths and just be the best that you can be. And from there, I think I did a little bit better. Well, both Julia and I are members um, of the pathway. And Bijan is busy doing his like MD, PhD stuff. No, you are? Pathway. Oh, really? I thought you were definitely like the research pathway. I'm sorry that I. I'm sorry, and I'll be joining soon. And I think you're doing an amazing job, and I have found it very, very valuable for my career. If that means anything, but that's my plug. Oh, it means so much. Thank (laughs) you for saying that. And are you? Can you share what your plans are for the future? Does yeah? Are you planning on being a hospital educator? Yes, I, I am. thought yeah. so. Congratulations! <laughs> Welcome. You. Welcome to the career. Thank you. I recently switched. Uh, I'm going to do cardiology. I'm still early on, so not totally sure, but interested in rheumatology, um, and also want to stay in academics. Awesome. And can we send the mic to Bijan and hear from him? The audience wants to know. We do. No, we don't. (laughs) Just kidding. Esselman and the two Elizabeths don't care. Wait, wait. That's that's still. You forgot about me. Yeah, you said me twice. (laughs) (laughs) That might have been on purpose. (laughs) No, Dr. Bast and the two Esselmans. Uh, (laughs) Still wrong. (laughs) I think you guys have had a long day. (laughs) 
All right. But we're doing well, our best. I want to academic medicine. Um, but I'll probably be doing, I'll be doing GI next year. And I'm, um, but definitely want to be involved in teaching as much as I can. And I feel like we don't learn how to teach, whether mm-hmm. we're PhD students or med students or associate professors. Yeah, this is what, now you've done it. <laughs> Welcome. No, Welcome to the mic. Keep going, keep going. Like um, so, so I think it's really important that we have like a formalized uh, pathway to try to teach like the principles of education. And in a lot of ways, I think this podcast is driving at the same thing, which is like, how do you learn how to teach because there's really not a lot of resources out there for that. There's a lot of medical education resources like Sketchy or um, you know online MedEd or like uh, clinical problem solvers, all of that stuff. But none of that gets it like, okay, well, I understand hyponatremia, but how do I teach my second year medical student about hyponatremia? So that is something I would like free to unpack if you, if you can. And then I'm going to give this back and never touch it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think that's the question a lot of us have sitting in your shoes and mm-hmm. early on in my career is how do you teach? And I had the same curiosity and the same, quite frankly, concern that I was not only going to be in attending a year or six months from now, uh, but I had spent my whole training learning how to be a doctor and none of my training learning how to be an educator. Mm -hmm. And so that is really what prompted me to get into teaching how to teach because I think there's no greater way to learn something than to teach it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can apply sort of in what I'm doing, but sort of any specialty that you guys are going to pursue. You will understand your material and your specialty to a greater depth if you can teach it. And sometimes just takes those repetitions to figure out how to teach it well. That kind of leads well to a question I had. Um, I heard you talking a little bit about how it was to fill a new role as an attending. Um, And as a new intern, I was wondering if you had any advice on how to adjust to more of a teaching role to someone who's never really done a whole lot of that and how to get the confidence to teach others when you're still kind of new at learning the material yourself. Oh, definitely. Um, And I think confidence will come. (laughs) Uh, And tips and strategies are things that you can start putting into practice as soon as you are in that educator role. And I actually want to give a shout out to the both of you. I had the pleasure of working with you guys on service for one day on the ACE service, our acute care of the elderly service. I was covering for someone uh, just one day. And uh, Dr. Sadie, as our team leader, did some excellent Uh, teaching. And I don't know if you were aware of it, but very much applied the concepts of the one minute preceptor. Are you guys familiar with that? And it's tell us more. Oh, I will. Um, Step one is getting a commitment from your team. And if you guys will recall, we had a patient who had lower extremity DVTs was coming up to their three-month mark on their anticoagulation. All right, I'm seeing some nods. We remember. Um, And the question became, we didn't know if it was provoked or unprovoked. Do we stop the anticoagulation at three months or do we continue it? And Dr. Sadie did a great job of asking our medical student to make a commitment to what they thought was going on and actually went around the whole group on rounds and asked them to make a commitment. Mm 
And what's powerful about that is you're pushing someone's clinical reasoning. And then you can follow that up by asking them why they made that decision so that their own clinical reasoning is available and evident to themselves. And then you follow that with your teaching point. So a provoked DBT that's resolved only needs three months of anticoagulation. However, in this case, the ultrasound yesterday showed there's still a DBT there. So why would we stop anticoagulation now? And then you follow that up with reinforcing what was done right, what decisions you agree with as the educator, and then finally, what you would tweak. And I think that that's a nice framework to use that was used very naturally on rounds. Um, and it's something that you can kind of lean on when you're practicing and figuring out, how do I navigate this? Where do I start? Good job, Dr. Sadie. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can kind of take that segue, if that's okay with the group, um, we're talking about like ways to teach kind of in the moment, on the wards, um, in more kind of less formalized ways, but also more formalized ways. And you mentioned one of your passions being chalk talks. Can you tell us a little bit more about like why you're passionate about that? What pieces you're passionate about? And then maybe we can like dig into a little bit more of the details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when I was a resident and I made that decision of wanting to do medical education and stay in academics, I, as I already shared, was most nervous about that role and thought, okay, I need to start getting repetitions in now if I'm ever going to succeed at this. Um, And the first thing I chose to do was give chalk talks. And thinking back on it now, I think I chose that because as a learner, it most resembles what you imagine teaching to look like, Mm -hmm. right? As a learner, you don't always appreciate that feedback is teaching that patient care discussions is teaching, but you definitely know when you're getting a chalk talk that you're getting teaching. And so that was the most obvious first place to start. I would also say that chalk talks are very accessible. Not only are they short and can be really done anywhere, but almost anyone can be an expert in something for 10 minutes, (laughs) right? Uh, And so it's a low bar to sort of reach for when you're starting out early on. And then Over the years, as I've gotten to know a little bit more of like the meta-ed literature and taking a deeper dive into things, I've only confirmed that this is really an effective teaching tool. So if you want to hear a little bit about that, I can talk about the literature and stuff too. I think we would love to hear about that. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, uh, as it's not a surprise, setting aside time to teach in a very deliberate way, Mm -hmm. again, in that obvious way to a learner that they are being taught, is what is most associated from a learner perspective uh, with identifying that attending as being an outstanding teacher. So if you just set aside that time to teach and you do it very deliberately, you will be already in the eyes of your learners that great educator or greater educator. Um, There's also a lot of literature out there about adult learning theory and um, trying to teach content with utility, something in the moment that can be applied to your patients. And there's no better strategy for taking a uh, time aside that you might only have 10 minutes to address something specific that came up on rounds or came up with your patients that then can be applied by your team later that day or the next day. Uh, And then lastly, we've all heard about learning styles 
Someone might identify themselves as a visual learner, as an auditory learner, et cetera. Uh, what we really know now is something called dual coding theory. And the idea is that if you use multiple strategies to teach, it's going to actually be more effective. Mm. And the literature shows that that strategy actually improves learning retention. Mm. So uh, while it might be obvious, chalk talks are not only a mini talk, but there's that chalk component, right? That visual component. And so you're teaching via an auditory strategy and a visual strategy at the same time. That's really helpful to kind of hear some of the theories and the evidence behind like the chalk talk. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, it sounds like you're very intentional in creating these talks, doing them in the right venue, um, making sure that everyone's in the right headspace for them. Can you talk a little bit about like how you prepare for a chalk talk strategies once you're actually giving the chalk talk to make sure everyone's engaged? Um, and then maybe some like ways that you kind of make it stick with learners uh, as you go along. Totally. I think you're hitting on some really important points. And I love how you started with uh, being able to pick up on when it's appropriate to do it. So I almost wonder if before I answer your question, I could pose a question to you all. As trainees, do we like chalk talks? Are there chalk talks that are that we don't like? Do we want to talk a little bit about that and kind of like get it off our chest before we talk about <laughs> strategies? And I say this because as a fan of the podcast, I've learned that one of my roles here is to convince Julia of something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so if we're going to convince her to give more chalk talks, we need to first dispel and sort of let out some of the things that you are alluding to, which is like, when is it appropriate? When is it not? What is appropriate to teach? How is it, can it be done effectively? And what is ineffective? So maybe thoughts from you all first. Yeah, I can go first. Um, I think for me as kind of like an, in the intern role, um, I find it very useful when we do set time aside for it, kind of like you said. I think a lot of times when things get busy during the day, it's really easy to kind of push it off until later and then maybe it doesn't happen and then the next day comes along and it still hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, so I think setting a time where everyone can be there is really helpful. And I think the length of time spent giving or receiving a chalk talk is really important too. Um, Cause I think there's a sweet spot with how much information you can retain during a busy day in the wards, as well as just like how, how much you can engage and focus. That's perfect. I think we can all relate to that. And I related to that as a learner and I have to remind myself of that as an educator. So don't forget those key points coming from your very own intern. All right. I totally agree. I think that like through all of my years of training that um, like whether as a med student or intern and then even as a third year, I think that chalk talks can be very helpful. And I, a big piece that I like about them too, is I love the different talks that people give. Like I've heard a million hyponatremia ones, but like, I love to hear everyone's approach to it because there's different pieces of everything that you're like, Oh, that's sticking for me or that's something that I'm going to learn. So I find them really useful as like a learner and as a educator as well. Um, and I totally agree that like the time is really important. I think that it's like making me think of, cause we were talking about Dr. Anderson's episode too. He said something where when you're at the bedside and you're talking to the patient and they open their mouth and everyone gets worried that they're like never going to stop talking. <laughs> I think that there's like a similar fear with teaching where you're like, oh my gosh, how long is this going to be? Because we would love teaching if it's indeed 
10 minutes, 15 minutes. But there's always the fear, like, what if it turns into an hour and we have these discharge summaries to write and we have these notes to write and we have all this stuff to loop back. So I feel like that commitment from the teacher is really key to, like, take that anxiety off of the team. Yeah, I agree with a lot of those. And it's probably because Lizzie's been my senior a lot. So like <laughs> we align in a lot of these uh thoughts. Um, I know everyone's taking a really positive side to the Chalk Talks. Don't get me wrong. I love Chalk Talks. But the thing that drives me the most nuts is when it's just a random topic. And I find now that I'm a senior giving Chalk Talks, it's like I have a certain amount of Chalk Talks that I know how to give. And none of our patients have any of those conditions. <laughs> and like I know as an intern, I hated when like my seniors like, let's talk about anticoagulations. Like this is not applicable to anything on my team right now. No, you didn't do that. <laughs> um, but I just think like making it pertinent is something that I feel is important. And I think we can talk about it a little bit more. And then kind of alluding off of what Lizzie said, it's like when you're the busy intern or the med student and you have a thousand things on your plate and the seniors like, all right, guys, let's all sit down and talk for 20 minutes about this topic. It's like, I have a million other things to do. So I'll take the negative side, some of the parts of Chalk Talks that I don't love. Um, and I think that's just import as important to talk about as it is to talk about the things we like about it. Because if we don't acknowledge the ways it can go wrong, then it's really hard to be successful, right? And I think you all summarized the pain points that come with any kind of teaching when there's no time, when you don't know how long it's going to take, <laughs> when you have other things to do, and when it's not something that's useful to you or at your level of learning. So I think all of those things go into planning a talk. And so to circle back to your question, which had a few parts, so let me see if I can remember them. It was about preparing, delivering, and making it stick, yes. right? Okay. So in terms of preparation, uh, I love that you asked this question because the greatest educators can make it look easy, like they didn't prepare it at all. Yes. But I'm here to tell you they did. And maybe they didn't <laughs> prepare it today, but once upon a time, the first time they gave it, they did prepare it. So there is some preparation. Uh, as an attending, we have the luxury after rounds of disappearing for a little while. And so be rest assured that when you are an attending, that is an opportunity to prepare talk. So for example, when we were on ACE the other day, before we parted ways... I asked, is there something you want to learn later? Do we feel like we have the bandwidth to do some teaching? And what time would that be if so? And I was lucky enough to have a super strong team that got all the work done and still had some time for teaching, gave me a time, everyone showed up and we got it done. So that was really helpful because I prepared, but they prepared too. They prepared their day and they were ready to go. And so that's why we we're all able to do teaching. In terms of how I went, about preparing. Um, I was lucky enough to be on a service where all the patients are old, <laughs> uh, excuse me, elderly, um, appropriate terminology. And so I just decided based on that, that I would pick a topic. So I picked uh, inpatient uh, diagnosis and management of delirium. I figured, I don't know that we had anyone with delirium, but we were going to, or we did, it was going to happen. Yeah. And so I had the benefit of being able to look at a set curriculum that was developed for the ACE service. And I looked at it and it was ni 19 pages long, excellent information, like really great reference. But I only took the first page and I created the first part, which was applying the CAM, the confusion assessment method to diagnosing delirium. And then I had already had from another chalk talk, the management of agitated delirium in three steps. So your non 
pharmacologic delirium precautions, the meds, and then finally the restraints. And so we talked a little bit about the controversy along each step. That was it. Um, and then I showed up and I did it later. And it was the first time I kind of gave this conglomerate of information, but it was simple and short enough that it was easy to prepare. And because I didn't try to cover too much, I did spend some of that preparation time thinking not only what am I going to say, what do I know about this topic, but how can I, well, one step back, what are the most important things for them to know about this topic and how do I make those really stick and hit? Mm -hmm. And so a little bit of that is, is the presentation and how you sort of draw it out. And a little bit is sort of where you focus your time. Now, how do you make it stick? Well, if you leave it on the whiteboard all week, maybe that is one strategy. Um, but there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, I think one classic one that can be effective is any teaching, whether chalk talks or otherwise, you end with take-home points. Uh, or in the line of teaching I do, which is teaching how to teach, I ask people to make a commitment to a strategy that they're going to put into effect. Something that allows you to discuss with the learner how they are going to be changed when they leave that educational experience. Because after all, that's what we're here to do as educators. We're here to make an impact. We're here to change people. And we're here to make their path ahead a little smoother. And I'd like to give Dr. Dietschy a shout out because <laughs> you actually did something else during your talk talk that you didn't mention um, that I thought was really, really cool. Um, she actually, you printed out kind of main points of like three different articles and handed one to the second year med student, one to the acting intern, and then one to Bijan and I. And each kind of article focused on a specific topic, kind of more tailored towards, you know, the second year got the question of like, how do you diagnose delirium? The acting intern got what are some non-pharmacologic strategies? And then we kind of got more of the pharmacologic strategies. Um, and I thought that having the combination of the whiteboard as well as like a physical paper and actually multiple physical papers was really interesting because then we went around the table and kind of each shared the main point from our paper and you even like circled highlights on the paper which I think makes it way more digestible um, than kind of just handing someone a three-page paper um, to read later. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that as well like is that something you do pretty frequently kind of how do you prepare for that that would be great too because I know Bijan and I after the chalk talk, we're like, wow, this was unbelievable. Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, but thank you. Thank you for at least lying on air. Um, I would say, uh, I think this comes from a place of not knowing sometimes how a topic's going to land and whether it's going to be too below the group or not. And that's what I was wondering with delirium. You all had been on this service for almost a month or some portion of a month. And probably there's a chance you talked about delirium or have already mastered it. And so that was a concern that I had that I need to sort of level it up, perhaps. And so that's when I pull, uh, you know, something from the literature, whenever I have a really strong resonant, or I have a topic that might be a little important, but maybe not like, impressive enough or, or complex enough. That's when I'll pull some evidence. And then the other secret about doing that is that it's a really easy way to engage the group because everyone gets a different abstract. Yeah. I've already underlined what I want them to tell me, tell back to me. Uh, and by them reading it to me, hopefully it'll stick. At least they're paying attention for that like one second that they're reading <laughs> what I underlined. Um, and has the added benefit of 
bringing some credibility to what you're teaching. Because you should always have a healthy doubt of what someone's teaching you. You know, look it up for yourself, um, whatnot. But uh, if that evidence is there in front of you, you're going to have a lot more confidence in the educator. You guys, it was awesome. Oh, man. I wish I was there. Do you want to redo it right now? (laughs) No, just kidding. Well. (laughs) Uh, So I think we've talked a lot of about a lot of amazing parts of Chalk Talks. And we talked about kind of some of our sticking points with it. Uh, what is your advice of things to avoid or things to, I don't know, just things to be very like cognizant of while you're preparing your Chalk Talk? I love that question. And I like to use myself as an example. This story many of you already know, but if it's okay to tell it again, I will for our listeners. The first chalk talk that I gave was a learning experience, to say the least. I, again, wanted to practice my educator skills. I asked my intern, what do you want to learn today? You know, thinking that if he picked the topic and then I rushed to prepare something, that he would be more engaged and like me more, basically. Um, And he chose the topic of acute coronary syndrome. And I said, okay, that's a great topic. That comes up a lot. It's important. You don't want to miss it. I will do that. And so I went to up to date or whatever the resource was at the time. And I went from A to Z on everything you need to know about (laughs) ACS. Okay. Um, And you guys saw, I still have a a photo of that talk because I was so proud of it and I worked so hard on it. And you can even see like down at the bottom that I talk about like what drugs are in a drug eluding stent. That's how granular I got. (laughs) And at the end, I turned to my intern and I said, how was that? Please give me feedback. I want to be an educator. I'm trying to learn how to build my skills. And he gave me some you know, generic positive feedback, like, oh, it's good. And then followed it with, it was heart-wrenching to hear. He followed it with, it just was a little too long. (laughs) And how long was it? It was 45 minutes to an hour. (laughs) And I can remember now that we found a call room that had a whiteboard and it was just me and him. And he was sitting there and he, of course, had all the work to do as the intern on the team. And he was held hostage in that room (laughs) for almost an hour. And so I tell that story to make the point that I had to learn through trial and error, which is that the topic you choose really matters. So not only do you want it to be pertinent and apply to something that is applicable to your patients, like Julia, you mentioned, when it's just something totally unrelated, it's hard to convince someone that it matters Mm -hmm. or that it's useful. Um, But also, when someone tells you what they want to learn... It's your job as the educator to put that through your filter of thinking about, okay, what can I actually accomplish related to this topic and what part of this topic is going to be the most helpful? And so that often means taking what you're told to talk about and narrowing it down and making it more specific and more of a piece of the pie. Yeah. In an ideal world, how long is a chalk talk? Yes. So I used to think this was controversial. I actually found a paper that says it should be 10 to 20 minutes. So it's out there in the literature. It's agreed upon. But when I bring that up with interns, actually just the other day, I was lecturing on shock talks and I asked the group because our interns are very much in the learner role still at the beginning of their year. We're uh, in November right now. Uh, I, I heard a lot of dissonance around the 20-minute upper limit, and I was told it must be 15 minutes or less. And so now I've taken that to heart, and I say 10 to 15 minutes. 
Does that sound right to you guys? As our as our uh, intern correspondent at the table, what, what do you think? Elizabeth? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think that's a totally reasonable amount of time um, to dive deep enough to kind of learn it, learn something new, but not kind of take the whole afternoon. Um, is it mostly via practice that you kind of were able to narrow down to that time frame? Because I can imagine like myself looking things up online and just wanting to share it all. Does it just mm. take like reps or do you focus on like, here are three things I'm going to talk about today? How do you kind of approach that? Great question. And it's, and you're right in that it's both repetitions and practice and also being deliberate about what you can accomplish. And it usually involves picking two to three key points. You really can't cover that much more in 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and then with repetitions, I have a habit of saving my chalk talks so that the next time, if I know it went too long the time before, I cut it down. If I really liked it, I just use it again. If I think I can improve upon it, I can improve upon it and it just speeds up the process next time. Uh, one point kind of launching off of that is in learners who I feel like we've all either been there, we've probably all been there, or at least we've seen it where I know personally I've been like gotten a chalk talk and I have no idea what's going on. And then the like person starts like asking you questions and then you get it wrong. And then they like ask you in a different way. It's like, I'm still wrong. And then you're just like, overwhelmed and you're like, I'm not taking anything away from this because I just feel so stupid right now, um, which no one should feel stupid. But I feel like I've been there. Yeah. I'm just kind of wondering, like, when you're teaching, how do you navigate that? If you're giving a talk or doing a, like even a little chat outside of the room in like helping that struggling learner, do you like kind of keep trying to hammer it around in different <laughs> ways? Or do you like come back to it later with them privately and just like strategies that you have for the struggling learner? Totally. Well, first off, Julia, we, I think we've all been there. We've all <laughs> yes. uh, been the subject of, quote, pimping, or mm -hmm. or the preferred term now is toxic questioning. Ooh. Uh, if you okay. didn't know. Uh, <laughs> and as an aside, are we familiar with the Journal of Hospital Medicine's Things We Do for No Reason? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so there's now one around toxic quizzing, and mm -hmm. they take a deep dive into this and sort of mm -hmm. why we do it and better strategies for getting it the goal that we thought we were getting at with pimping uh, and alternative ways to go about it. But um, the essence of all this is that the educators who do this and when we experience this as a learner, the what they're trying to do is engage the audience and it's just not the right way to do it. And so uh, pimping or toxic quizzing is classically the question you're asked uh you know, directly at one person that has a right and wrong answer, uh, which you may or may not know. Mm -hmm. And then the response to that answer, especially when it's wrong, is no, that's wrong. And that doesn't feel good for anyone. And then it turns out that as an educator, as you're trying to engage someone, you actually accomplish the opposite. And they close off, they um, shut down, and they learn nothing, hear nothing after that. I do think that questioning still has a role, though, because oftentimes as an educator, it's hard to gauge what someone knows and what they don't. And the last thing that you want to do is waste everyone's time teaching them something they already know. Mm -hmm. So how do you find that middle ground? I think questions are the answer, but I think it's more of an open-ended type question. And the classic question is, who has seen X before? What was your experience treating a patient with cirrhosis? What complications did you see? 
And they might say, oh, I've never seen a patient with cirrhosis. I don't know what the complications are. And no one feels ashamed admitting that because it's just a fact of their experience and their training. Um, and it gives you as the educator a sense of where they're starting from. Now, when it comes to struggling learners, um, I would say I, when it comes to a teaching environment, I generally don't think about the label of a struggling learner there. I just think about where are you at and where is that next step that I can take you? And that's the mentality that I'll take. Um, struggling learners, I, I more so think about, you know, in terms of presentations, uh, not following instructions, not following through, like those kinds of things that are directly harmful to patient care and, and their progression in their career. But when it comes to my job of teaching them something, I just think about where they're at, where do I want to take them? And that's how I look at it. So I think some of the coolest parts of Chalk Talks, at least for me as a very visual learner, is the setup. And I love seeing, I mean, we're looking at your previous talk that we keep talking about, but there's like stairs, there's like a little scale, mm -hmm. but all the ways to visually represent things. Do what resources do you use to help with that? Or I mean, if you are just coming up with all of this off the top of your head, that's amazing. And <laughs> no, no, no. Where um, can we uh, look to help with that? And I'll add, there's also a lot of really sloppy handwriting happening up there and a couple of um, spelling errors. But um, that's besides the point. Uh, I agree with you. What you're hitting at, Lizzie, and thank you for the um, the layup here is the idea of an advanced organizer. And that's a term in the biz for thinking about how to organize the visuals for a chalk talk. And the idea of an advanced organizer is that it's something that everyone already comes to the talk understanding. It's some basic principle. And then you overlay your talk on top of that visual. So uh, there's a book out there called Teaching in the Hospital put out by the ACP, and they give the example of a clock and teaching the location of abdominal pain around the abdomen and tying it back to the cause of the pain. So what underlying organ is at noon versus six uh, on a clock. So that's one example. Ones I really like to use uh, as basic as a list. So you can see up there that I used a list. I like using stairs to think about the progression, particularly in management. So feel free to use that one. Mm -hmm. uh, comes up a lot. And then when we talked about the risk benefit analysis of using antipsychotics in the agitated patient with dementia, we had to talk about the black box warning and the increase in mortality. And so I drew a scale to talk about that risk benefit discussion. And so I think usually the content will yield you the ideal advanced organizer. Um, but if it doesn't, think lists, tables, stairs, Venn diagrams are fun, uh, pyramids are fun. So any of those things. And if it works, it works. This might be kind of a basic question, um, but going back to kind of what you mentioned earlier about saving your chalk talks, do you typically like draw them out on a piece of paper and save them or how do you save the visual aspects of them? Or does that, do you change that as you go? Great question. Um, I definitely have prepared chalk talks on a piece of paper and taken a picture and saved it in my phone. Sometimes, and I wish I did this more, and I think it comes from a area of insecurity, but I sometimes will at the end of the talk in front of the group say, all right, I'm going to take a picture of this. You're welcome to take a picture too. 
save it, give this talk in the future, make it better, make it your own. And I like that strategy because I really benefited from that as I was coming up in my career. I took pictures of other people's talks. I've used them. I've, I've sort of changed them or added to them, subtracted from them. And so I think that that is the way to uh, speed up the process of getting your own repository of talks. So I want to keep talking about Chalk Talks forever, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I have one more question that's kind of coming back to something you said in the very beginning. You said that you didn't feel like this, you really enjoyed teaching, but you didn't feel like this niche was like readily accessible when you kind of first got into being an attending. And I'm just kind of wondering, I feel like traditionally academic medicine is really focused on like the research side and this like scholarly activity in med ed is not as readily apparent. I feel like it's kind of becoming more and more apparent now. Um, but I was just kind of wondering, like, do you have any advice for learners like us to branch into that med ed world and find scholarly activity within that branch of like academia and like strategies to kind of get our career to be on that path? Absolutely. What a great question. Um, a few thoughts about how to go about that. I think finding a mentor that sort of looks like the person you might want to be, maybe doing that scholarship or doing that med ed work already is helpful. That's what Dr. Anderson was for me, and I'm so grateful. Uh, I would also argue that um, there are opportunities, maybe not enough opportunities out there, but you can also create your own opportunities. And for those of you that are interested in specializing, recognize that you can have an interest that you overlap with medical education. So if you're interested in rheumatology and um, are doing research on Gosh, catch me if this is like totally off, but like ultra musculoskeletal ultrasound, that's a radio, that's a rheumatology thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. It's approved. Um, and maybe that's where your research is. Well, then if you want to bring it into the med ed space, you pitch it to the residency and you say, hey, this is a cool new skill that I would be happy to teach your residents and develop a curriculum around. So don't be discouraged if where you end up doesn't look like medical education. It, if you have a niche and an expertise, you can always bring it over by doing that teaching, creating that curriculum, and filling that void for trainees. Does that answer that question? You can say yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, we have had a lovely time talking with you. And me as well. Thank you for having <laughs> learned me. so much about how to tailor our future talk talks, um, or at least I have. And I have had a really good time talking with you. And maybe we'll have a part two at some time in the future. I'd love to come back. Hopefully not on a long service day or a day off. <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me. See you at our next clinical educator uh, session. Yes. <laughs> that's a plug. That's a plug. You yeah. all heard it here. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Check out our show notes and follow us on MedX and Instagram to get the most up-to-date information on what the Review of Systems crew is up to. As always, thanks to our executive producer, Bijan Shady. Shady. <laughs> Shady. Now that is fitting. He's very shady sometimes. And shout out to Whitney Gould for our music and graphics. And with that, I'd say a 14-point review of systems is complete. 
unless otherwise stated in the HPI. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.